we're not here all either to shoehorn you into a stand up and sing why are you here today we worship you here today. Um, don't forget to get your communion cups out of the back and um, your communication cards are somewhere in front of you. And there's also another C sounding word that is a QR code. It's actually a Q. But, um, so there's a QR code in the back of the seats that will also take you to several things, not just the communication card. So consistently look at uh, trying to communicate with us through the cards and you can complete that. 
I'm just trying to think of all the C words that they can make me stumble you over. Can do it, Randy. I can, you but can. you you can you can be uh, uh, it'll be a compliment for us. And, uh, anyway, we're so glad you're here. But uh, let's continue to worship uh, yes, our here. Lord and Savior this morning. I love you, Lord.
who gives this patience and encouragement help you to live in complete harmony with Uh each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Uh Then all of you can join together Uh with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. of sin. The gates open wide. He has welcomed us in. Oh, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Oh, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus, His Son, and give Him the glory. Great things He has done. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. purer and higher and greater will be our wonder our transform when jesus we see praise the lord praise the lord praise the lord praise the lord to god be the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. Oh, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Oh, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus, his Son, and give him the glory, great things he has done. 
nor Gentile, right. neither slave nor fear, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Brothers, sisters, together worshiping the Lord this morning. We are one body because of him. We will work with each other. We 
existence, but instead who you are. You are love, you are truth, you are peace. Lord, that be, let that be transparent through us. May you shine through us so that those who are in this world who do not know you, Lord, they need you so desperately. Let them see you through us. We are brothers and sisters shining your love for one another and for the, this lost world. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your communion cups and open them up. As Jesus' disciples gathered for the Passover meal, they still didn't understand what was about to happen, but Jesus did. He knew he was about to die. As they celebrated Passover, that was the Jewish celebration of being freed from slavery by God's hand. And what Jesus was about to do was to free us all. A few weeks ago, I spent some time at camp with the help of Bill and Rachel and some other wonderful Christian people. And our theme was free. As we were there over Independence Day, we talked about how freedom is always bought with a price, usually by bloodshed. And Jesus did that for us. But what that does is free us from that fear, freed us from having to be perfect by the law. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each of us, as in Adam, I'm sorry, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, us, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I attended the funeral of my father-in-law yesterday, and you know, the service for a believer, he was a believer, a pastor, an elder, is so different than that of an unbeliever. Because while there were some tears from memories, there was celebration. He was not there. That was just a shell. He was in heaven already. And that is what we can look forward to. And that is what Christ gave us through his crucifixion and his resurrection is to be freed from the fear of death and from death itself and the power over us. 
He shed his blood to give us freedom. And that's what we need to remember every time we take these symbols of the bread and wine, that we don't have to fear um, what is coming. So let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Messiah, the sacrifice for our freedom, our role model of how to live and how to die. Lord, help us to always remember what he did for us and that we are free from fear and from death because of him and that we will live to serve him until our time comes to be with you. In his name we pray. Good morning. Thanks. Welcome to CFLM, where we begin by casting out children. <laughs> children. Farewell. You are dismissed, kids. We love you. So if you're here for the first time, we commit scriptures to memory every month, and so this is the last opportunity you have to recite this scripture. If you haven't done so yet, you can do so tomorrow. So... Uh, go ahead, give it a shot, and go! Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, uh, I don't keep competitions, but indeed, second service won this month. Uh, it's pretty objective, and we will see how it goes next month. Keep up the streak. So as we get into things, I was once told you'll never fully belong here. I don't remember his exact words, but that was the gist of what he said. Seated in a church library around two six-foot tables, my interview for the youth minister position of the Chinese church was nearing an end. Across from me, the man who uttered those words was Pastor Bob, a man I'd grow to love as a mentor in the faith. Bald, bearded, and of a girth that made clear his love for food, perhaps he reminded me of another man of God. Joining us around the table were Pastor Wu, the senior pastor and functioning patriarch of the church, Auntie Mary, a gentle, sweet, frail old lady uh, who worked primarily with the elderly and who has since passed and gone to be with the Lord. Quan Shefeng, or KC as he was called, a timid but wise pastor, weathered not only by ministry but by many hardships, a man I'd come to love and cherish as a friend. Of all those around the table, he probably came the closest to sharing my own views of, of ministry and theology. 
And Eric Chang, an ABC or American-born Chinese, the youth minister who was leaving to grad school whose position I was trying to fill. Twelve years later, none remain on staff at the church. Two retired, two resigned, one died, and I'm not really sure if I was fired or resigned. Uh, though I would suppose the Lord would say I was simply relocated. Bob, no longer a pastor as he since retired, wanted to warn me that my being white would serve as a permanent barrier to true belonging. He was trying to help me count the cost of cross-cultural ministry, and as quickly as he uttered those words, it became my mission to prove him wrong. If the gospel is true, I thought, he must be wrong. If the gospel brings together Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian, free and slave, then certainly Asian and white could be reconciled as well. I didn't realize it until I started preparing for this sermon, but the fortress of racism hits a nerve. I quipped earlier about the nature of my exit from the Chinese church, and this is not the time or the place to go into the details of that departure, but I have no doubt that my race, my ethnicity, played a role in my exit. So to be sure, some didn't think I belonged. I hated change, I hate leaving, I hated having little chance to say goodbye because I was told to keep quiet about the issues brewing in leadership and I respected their request. I hated the pain that it brought my family. But what I hated most of all was that Bob's words had seemed to come true. I hated that I had failed to do honor to the gospel message in my own life and hated that the spirit had been grieved by our failure to reconcile. In Shusaku Endu's novel, Silence, a defeated apostate missionary to Japan called Ferreira says to a young and aspiring missionary who had been sent to find him, this country is a more terrible swamp than you can imagine. Whenever you plant a sapling in this swamp, the roots begin to rot, the leaves grow yellow and wither. And we have planted the sapling of Christianity in this swamp. Many Christians are jaded to the issue of racism. They're inevitable in a sinful world. Some are tired of seeing race hijack situations and relationships. Others grieve, sensing the church has failed, observing that Sunday mornings are among the most segregated hours of the week in America. And so has our own country, our own state, our own town become a swamp in which the vine will wither and rot. There is no gray area here. Either the gospel is true, and the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow together before Jesus, or it's not. And every tribe, tongue, and nation will remain divided and cut off from one another. There is no other way. There is no hope of reconciliation. There is no hope of healing here outside of the gospel. And so in wrapping up our series on fortresses, we're going to tackle the issue of race by starting with terminal tribalism. Then I'll attempt to destroy critical race theory. And we'll conclude by considering how we have been brought near. And so let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that by his blood we have indeed been united to one another, to you. Lord, as we come before you to address this this weighty topic, I want to pray for those who have been wounded by it. And then I pray that uh, through our conversation, through our message this morning, through our study of your word, that healing would come from your spirit. Lord, I pray that if this is something lingering within the hearts of anyone here, that they would be convicted and repent. Lord, I pray that through all of our time together this morning, you would be lifted up, glorified, and exalted. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would it disturb you today if I told you that I identify as an Asian American? 
I spent 10 years in the Chinese church, after all. Uh, when I came over to CFLM, I was hit with some pretty significant reverse culture shock. Uh, the way things happen here is not the way things happen there. Uh, and so I, I really had a hard time adjusting. You could say I kind of had some, some Chinese way of thinking about how things ought to go. Can't I appeal to my lived experience? Of course not. Absolutely not. There are some things in life that, there are things in life concerning your identity that are sacred. They are sacred insofar as God chose them for you. You cannot, you did not choose them for yourself. You did not choose your skin color. You did not choose your place of birth. You did not choose your ethnic background and all the customs that characterize the family and culture that brought you up. If someone claimed to choose these things, one should be rightfully concerned, for such a claim implies a degree of divinity. God alone ordains these foundational aspects of who you are. God has blessed us with a will and a capacity to make difficult decisions, but in His sovereignty, He has left key areas totally off limits, areas that center around family and what makes somebody human. Issues of sexuality and gender, issues of race, issues of ethnicity, hometown, and more. You chose none of it. God did, and he knew what he was doing. Scripture says little about race, but it speaks often of ethnicity. Your ethnicity, as I've said, is sacred. Our world talks a lot about empowerment. Well, there is nothing more ethnically empowering than knowing that your ethnicity was chosen by God purposefully. It was not an accident. It is not abnormal. It is not insignificant or trivial in his sight. You glorify God when you are thankful for who he created you to be. Your ethnicity, your ethnos, refers to matters of language, traditions, cultural identity, uh, the town into which you were born. Some of these traditions are good and God-honoring. Some are absolutely awful and sinful. There is, a, there is a brokenness and a beauty to really every ethnicity, to every culture. For example, 10 years in the Cincinnati Chinese Church shaped within me a deep respect for the honor, the duty, the loyalty that the Chinese community has to their elders, to their parents, to their family. Uh, that is not something I often see replicated in more American circles. Uh, and yet there's a real brokenness there in that there's also a, a, a need to save face, which results in a, a double living, uh, a double standard of sorts in which everyone is, is kind of living a double life. Among the beauties of the American ethnicity is the fact that it, it's perhaps the only culture on earth that does not classify itself by one's physical appear, appearance, but by one's commitment to a set of ideals. And yet, the traditional American work, work ethic of earning everything you have makes a heart that, or shapes a heart that is very reticent to receive grace, a gift that you did not deserve, a gift that you cannot work for, a gift that is freely given by the Lord. And so... I am convinced that God has written truths about himself into every culture to lead people to him. An example of this that's really cool is the, the Chinese term for righteousness comes from two characters. One is lamb and one is me. And the way it's drawn is you have a picture of the lamb over me. Uh, that's a very fascinating picture in, in which we see that the Lord is drawing people of all nations, of every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. Interestingly, in the New Testament, this, this word ethnos shows up in the book of Revelation more than anywhere else. Now, in Revelation 15, we come to a great song of victory. Now, hear the words of those crying out before the throne. 
And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, the ethnone. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, when not translated as nations, this, this term is more commonly translated as Gentiles. For instance, Matthew 12, 21, And in his name the Gentiles will hope, the ethnone. The Great Commission, sending us out to be... To, to go to all the nations could just as well be rendered, go therefore to the Gentiles, to those who are far away, and graft them back in. Scripture then does not divide people according to appearance as the world often does, but according to promise. There are certainly throughout Scripture some dividing lines of people, but it's not consistent with the way that we so often divide one another. Biblically, we do see people divided by means of promise. There are those who are, are of the promise and those who are not. Galatians 3.29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Who belongs to the family of God is among the biggest questions answered throughout the Bible. From Abraham onwards, we see the preservation of the promise in spite of endless misery and persecution because God was creating a family for himself. Who belongs and how are major issues dealt with in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. But to that we shall soon return. But what about race? You know, we've talked a little bit about ethnicity. What are we going to do with this issue of race? Well, race as we tend to think of it would be most related to, to the biblical phule, or tribe. If ethnos is a blanket term used to describe those formerly outside of the promise who have been grafted in, the Gentiles, then phule would refer to the specific group from which you descend. For example, Paul is of what tribe? Benjaminite. Very good. Jesus is of what tribe? Judah. There you go. And so if ethnos is, surrounded, is centered around promises, tribe is centered around patriarchs. Promises and patriarchs. If this sounds distinct from modern understandings of race, it is. The world treats race like choosing a paint color. Dividing and categorizing one another on the basis of the most insignificant differences of tone. Pastor Vodibachum, in a sermon entitled Racial Reconciliation, which if you have an hour this week, you ought to watch, observes, Race is actually a social construct. The concept of race is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical idea. It's a constructed idea. You won't find the idea of races in the Bible unless you find it in the proper historical context that we are all the race of Adam. We're not even different colors. Technically, from a genetic perspective, from a biochemistry perspective, we're all the same color. We're just different shades of the same color. Some of us just have more melanin than others. Just because you don't have as much melanin as I do, don't you dare think that God doesn't love you as much as he loves me because he gave me more. You learn to be satisfied with what little you have. Now, some may think that Bauckham was just being facetious, but he's right. Racial separations are artificial. They are not biblical. They're not even genetic. Our world's preoccupation with segregating one another according to physical traits like hair, skin color, and so on, exposes our tendency to value the unseen or to value the seen over that which is unseen. And so fool ourselves into becoming judges 
in the process. God judges hearts indeed, but not physical organs with ventricles and, and whatnot, but he judges the unseen soul, the thoughts and intentions of a man. Meanwhile, we judge according to the flesh, often sizing up one another based on how we look, uh, how we sound, what skin tone we may have, how nice our hair may or may not be. What we call ra- racism and limit to the flesh, Scripture calls partiality and extends to all forms of favoritism. James writes, James 2, 1 through 4, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Did you catch that? When we make arbitrary distinctions among believers, we become judges with evil motives. Racism, a modern manifestation of the sin of partiality, is most certainly evil. In Beyond Racial Gridlock, George Yancey highlights four ways our Western American world often responds to racism. I'm going to summarize each attempt, noting some strengths and weaknesses of each. As an observation, I've seen that what many Christians often do is they observe one of these four attempts. Uh, They take it, whichever one they like, whichever one may align with their political views. They go and find one or two scriptures, rip it out of context, uh, sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on the view, and say, behold, I have a robust robust biblical argument. And and I would just encourage you, don't be such a person. Uh, None of these four views really hold any water. They're all weak. They all fall short. And so first off, colorblindness, which contends that we will have racial reconciliation once we ignore race and forget the past. Now, such a view tries to be impartial and not treat one group above the others, and it doesn't really see racism where it doesn't exist. But shortcomings include providing no real form of healing to those who have been wounded. Forgetting the past is much easier for some than others. Those who advocate colorblindness often fail to acknowledge the depth of the problem or recognize the scars that many carry. And so by largely ignoring matters of race and ethnicity, one may be dismissing an integral part of who we are as people created in the image of God. And so this is a favorite approach of conservatives, but it's not enough. Secondly, Anglo-conformity, which occurs when racial minorities are encouraged to imitate the majority. Contending once economic equality is achieved, racism will be overcome. Though this model is more likely than other models to overcome economic disadvantages, uh, the, the major glaring flaw in this model is its belief that the biggest problem we all have is economic differences. Socioeconomic differences are not our biggest problem. Thirdly, multiculturalism emphasizes the value and worth of minorities and aims to uplift minority individuals and cultures. Celebrating the values and worth of all ethnicities is a worthwhile endeavor, but it tends to denigrate other cultures. And so while trying to uplift all cultures, they can tend to devalue and villainize others. And finally, white responsibility, which asserts racial problems are the fault and responsibility of the majority culture, whites. 
I'll deal with this in greater detail momentarily in my attempt to destroy critical race theory. Now, having named these four models, it is laughable how little any of them actually achieve. This is the best our universities have to offer. This is it. And so seeing that, we, we can pretty quickly recognize that when it comes to true racial reconciliation, when it comes to true healing, there is nothing outside of the gospel that is going to achieve that. In spite of all of our efforts to segregate and isolate ourselves from one another, the biblical traje trajectory of tribes is terminal. Not in the sense that our resurrected bodies will all look the same, but in that the very biblical foundations of ethnicity and tribe, that is, promises and patriarchs, have been fulfilled and completed in the person of Jesus. It doesn't matter which tribe you come from, because he is the king of kings, and at his throne all nations will bow. Paul considered all the boasting he once made in his Benjaminite ethnic ethnicity, he considered that rubbish as dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will certainly be on display in the tapestry of eternity, but they'll all be held together by a single scarlet thread, and that is the blood of Christ. Have you ever heard the story of Siddhartha Gautama, the man who would later be regarded as the Buddha? He grew up rich, sheltered, and protected. A day came when his father permitted him to go out on a chariot ride, but not before his, his father tried to purge the, the countryside of things that may lead him astray, to lead him to a religious life. In spite of his father's efforts, Gautama would end up seeing four things that utterly shocked him, causing him to rethink his entire worldview. And so out goes Gautama, and he, first he sees an old dying man, then he sees a man disfigured with a disease, he sees a funeral procession, and he sees a monk living a life of renunciation and piety. Old age, disease, death, piety. Unable to forget what he saw, Gautama reshaped his entire worldview around the problem of suffering and how to escape it. He had had enough. Nearly 30 years old, he fled his fleshly desires. He left behind his wife and infant son. He mounted his horse. He cut off his flowing locks, and he abandoned all that he knew taking upon himself a life of renunciation. Let me tell you the story of another who left home. She too grew up sheltered and protected, not by the walls of a luxurious palace, but by the walls of the church. When she went out into the world, she too saw things that shocked her. She saw happy gay people living with loving one another with a kindness and tenderness that seemed so real. She saw women encouraged to speak up and speak out, empowered women who didn't need men. She saw minorities frustrated with, frustrated with being victimized, encouraged to fight back against their oppressors. She saw that outside her church walls, they talked about justice and tried to do something about it. Homosexuality, feminism, social justice. Like the Buddha, she too went home and reshaped her entire worldview. Not around the problem of suffering, but around the dual problems of justice and happiness. The problem she found with happiness was that she discovered it could be found outside the church, among those living lives contrary with the teachings of Scripture. And yet they were happy. They, looked, they truly loved one another. Who was she to say otherwise? The problem with justice is that she didn't see it met in the church, but when she saw it, ad and she saw it advocated for elsewhere. She saw it advocated for women, for minorities, for the least of these. Isn't that biblical? Isn't justice a good and godly thing? And so she supposed her church back home just didn't care about 
justice. Now, if this sounds familiar, this is the path I have watched youth after youth after youth take upon leaving for college. The 18 to 25 age group did not exist in the Chinese church. They were all pushed not only to go to college, but to go to the top colleges. And so I did want to take a moment and just pause and thank the Lord for the college group that exists here. Uh, it, is, it is significant. It, it, is God, it, it is good and godly. And they are facing some very difficult, difficult things. And so I wanted, you to, wanted to encourage you to keep them in your prayers. Furthermore, I know that as parents looking around in this world, there is this sense of dread. Uh, there is a sense of, man, I do not want my kids growing up in this. I, I don't even know what to do. Where do we go? And so I wanted to give you a word of encouragement. Not only is our ethnicity sacred, but so is our time and our place, particularly our time. God ordained not only who you are, but when you are. He's called you to deal with today's issues, not yesterday's. He will equip you to walk with him just as he walked with those who walked before you according to the promise. And so if you are concerned for your children, trust that the Lord is not in the sense that he has provided them with everything they need to walk through the mess of our world today. Psalm 29.10 declares, the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord was and is and is to come. He is God even in calamity, even in the flood. He foresaw not only these fortresses, but his victory over them, and so rejoice. Returning to the girl who went out and saw a world contrary to the one she heard about in church, she joins many who become deeply frustrated when they think about the church. In hindsight, the church just seems so cold and oppressive. Many leave the faith altogether. You know, seeing happy homosexuals in the pursuit of justice elsewhere eroded any trust in the scriptures and any faith in the Christian God. What she didn't realize, though, is that upon going out into the world and taking off what she thought were her glasses, her worldview of, of, of Christianity, she had new glasses, a new worldview slipped upon her face right underneath her nose, and she didn't even know it. In this case, the new glasses that had been slipped upon her face were the glasses of critical theory, of which critical race theory is a subset. I have watched many, painfully many, abandon the faith as a result of CRT, and so I now I want to set out to define and destroy it. And so what is this? Well, critical theory's origins are traced to the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1920s among philosophers who were very frustrated with the slow progress of communism. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the history of America and the world, think about Germany, 1920s. There is some significance to that. As a subset of critical theory, CRT is rooted in four concepts. First, group identity. Second, hegemonic power. If you don't know what that means, wait a minute, I'll explain. Thirdly, oppression. And fourth, liberation. An example of group identity may be liberal, Asian, American, Buddhist, female. There are, of course, always more groups. Uh, perhaps she's poor. Perhaps she's disabled. You can always find more. Uh, there are always more dividing lines, more forms of division to be found. Group identity is significant because based on one's group identity, they would say they have experienced different degrees of oppression. And so knowing one's group identity leads to an understanding of how you've been oppressed. Well, what do I mean by oppression? I do not mean a standard De uh, dictionary definition of oppression, uh, of cruel exercise of authority or power, but rather oppression refers to hegemonic power. 
If you have a hard time saying hegemonic or saying hegemony, just think Jiminy Cricket. Hegemony Cricket. And so we have hegemonic power, which is the ability of a particular group to impose its norms, values, and expectations on the rest of society. Thus, whenever an aspect of someone's group identity does not align with hegemonic power, they are oppressed. As an aside, if you've ever heard the term intersectionality, this is what it's talking about. People are being trained and encouraged to identify all the ways they deviate from the hegemonic power because the more you differ, the more you're oppressed. The more you're oppressed, the more you're a victim. The more you're a victim, the more you're entitled to harbor anger, resentment, and bitterness in your heart. And a lot of people have a lot of that and want to have good excuses as to why they should harbor it. If you're lost at this point, an easy example. In our society, someone wearing CRT glasses would say heterosexual, white, conservative, Christian men are the hegemonic power. It's just the way it is today. They set the norms, values, and expectations. Therefore, all other groups are enduring some level of oppression. It's pretty easy, then, to see why so many young men would rather be girls or gay or somehow both. It's an escape from judgment. When, when all the world says you're already guilty, then you find a way not to be. Thus, the group with hegemonic power becomes oppressors whether they are trying to be unjust and cruel or not. Your motives don't matter here. The goal, then, of CRT is liberation. Liberation from what? Well, from the hegemonic power. Mary Talk, an advocate of such things, writes, Working toward a celebration of diversity implies working for social justice. Here, the, which she defines that as the elimination of all forms of social oppression. Social injustice takes many forms. It can be injustice based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual, sexual orientation, uh, physical or mental ability, or economic class, or anything else you want to find. That is what our world means by social just, justice. Now, those phrases are very tempting for many Christians. They hear justice and think, yes, Scripture is all about that. And, and so you hear this phrase and you see things happening and you're tempted to it, but understand that the, the means here are wicked. I am convinced that this is all satanic temptation. When Satan tempted Jesus, the problem wasn't the item that was dangled before Christ, but the means of getting it. And Christians yearning for justice today have taken the bait. Many of these goals are admirable, but the means is wicked and the terms have been redefined. Now, providentially, my old friend KC from the Chinese church reached out, reached out to me this last week, and we were able to sit down to a meal. And in the process of sitting down, we're, we're talking, we have both been fairly wounded by the Chinese church, and he, he was asking me very thoughtful, kind, gracious questions about that. But then he changed gears in the middle of the whole conversation. He leans forward and he says, Sean, I want to talk to you about something that is really destroying our church, and that's critical race theory. And I thought that was very interesting that he brought that up, because I hadn't even addressed the issue, even though I knew that's exactly what I was going to be preaching on this week. He was concerned because he had watched many young people, including his own children, led astray by this. He was current concerned because he saw that the church was being destroyed from within. He was concerned because it's the same schemes that Satan used in China under Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution. He was very concerned. He was very upset. CRT is not biblical. Being woke is not biblical. Since many Christians fall prey to the social gospel, the belief that the core of the gospel message is achieving social equality through the end of injustice, racism, and poverty, which are wonderful results of the gospel, by the way, these are good, wonderful things that the gospel brings forth, but it's not to be equated with it. We see 
that ultimately we need to con- consider and think through the different ways that, that CRT is at, is at odds with a biblical worldview. So first off, truth. How does one access truth or know truth through the lens of CRT? Well, through lived experience. As such, minority groups have an access to truth inaccessible to the majority. The majority, after all, is blinded by privilege. Truth comes from the person of God as revealed in his word, his creation, his son. He has given us logic and reason to discern truth, not always experiences. Vodibachum calls this tendency to appeal to experience as ethnic Gnosticism. A fantastic phrase. Gnosticism refers to having a special or hidden knowledge that is only accessible to a few privileged people. CRT teaches majority culture, whites, have by definition a distorted view of reality. It is all wrapped up in systems of power and oppression. Minority groups, meanwhile, can appeal to lived experience in order to have a special access to truth, and thus minorities have a secret knowledge. Meanwhile, majorities have guilt. Do you see the trap here? One group is by definition racist, while all other groups can appeal to their own experiences to justify claims without evidence. And so we must reflect, and this is something all of us must reflect, is are our experiences, are our lived experiences always true? For example, I, lived up with a li- I grew up with a lived experience that alcohol is always deeply evil. Is it? No. But my experience made me hypersensitive to it. And so it was helpful to talk to those who had not been abused by it in order to get a healthier view of what it truly was. Many do experience racism. I hope that's clear and, and, and at least understood. And for those who have, it may be helpful to talk to those who have not been abused to get a healthier view of it. I had to learn alcohol isn't always evil. Some who have suffered from racism need to learn that not everything is racist. Appeal to experience is not a means of achieving identity. In CRT, identity is horizontal. It's as though you can line up people and say, well, I'm similar to this person this way, this person this way, this person this way, but different in all of these other ways. Meanwhile, we have a vertical identity rooted in God. All people were created in the image of God and therefore all have a unifying aspect of who we are. We need not be united economically, racially, or any other superficial way to be truly united. We need to repent when we make an aspect of our identity greater than our identity in Christ. Thirdly, hegemony. Recall, hegemony is the dominant norm-setting view. Well, from Genesis to Revelation, the scripture seeks to establish a hegemonic power. Uh, It is establishing a a view that is going to reign eternally, whether you like it or not. It teaches one God revealed in three persons, the Trinity, a series we're starting next week. It makes clear statements about sin and morality. It provides provides us with values and norms by which we ought to live our lives. It tells us things about gender and sexuality, and it doesn't allow for any gray area. CRT contradicts itself in its aim to liberate. It is trying to become the hegemonic power. And so what happens then? If it becomes the majority view, which ironically it is in Hollywood and the university and the media and the White House and nearly anywhere you look, then is it by definition oppressive? Should it be overthrown? 
If the goal to overthrow everything, in truly the goal to overthrow everything in power is self-defeating because, because once you gain power, now you need to be overthrown. And so we find that it's a self-defeating route of, of how they approach things. Finally, morality. We see in Scripture that morality is consistent and that the same moral standards apply to the peasant and the king alike. Whether you are rich or poor, whoever you are, you, you, are, you are called to, to abide by the same Ten Commandments. You are called to abide by the same law. You are called to worship the Lord and follow His ways. CRT disagrees. If a minority does something violent, it can be justified because of lived experience. Jesus did not give minority groups a pass. He called all to repent, to repent of the right to get even, to repent of the hatred and bitterness that had formed in their hearts, and to love their enemies and to show that you are like your Father in heaven and not like this world. And so while CRT claims to unite, it divides, it separates, and subdivides further. Thanks be to God, then, that by Jesus' blood we have been brought near. And so I want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. Like all fortresses, race isn't a new one, but an old one. The schemes of the adversary are like kaleidoscopes. They seem to change and transform, but it's just an illusion that goes in circles. Partiality was a serious issue in the early church. If you think it is difficult to ad address the issue of racism in our country that is less than 250 years old, then consider how difficult it is to address an issue between two warring groups that hated one another for over th two, about 2,000 years. And yet, we see that is precisely what the scriptures do. They address it. They, heal it, they he bring healing. They reconcile it. Such a task, you, would, you could say would take a miracle. You could say it would be like raising the dead to life. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. And I want you to listen to all the words of distance, separation, and despair in this passage. And I want you to remember that it's talking about who you were. These things applied to you. Easy to forget that. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you hear all the words of division and distance? Uncircumcision, separate excluded, strangers, no hope. Paul addressing the Gentiles recognized they may be quick to forget the depths of depravity from which they had been called. It has been said, we more frequently require to be reminded than be informed. And so be reminded, if only for a moment, of who you were before Jesus, that you might rejoice, that you now live in the light. Remember for a moment the depth of the bad news here. Who belongs in the family of God? Without Jesus, the answer is not you, not me. Without Christ, we do not belong. Without Christ, we have not been brought near. Without Christ, we are strangers and far off and distant and cut off and without hope. But thanks be to God. I do not say this to your shame, but to his praise because of what comes next. We continue in verse 13. But now, one of the most beautiful buts in all the Bible... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 
underline that. Memorize that. Cherish that. Sing praises to that. Remember, Gentile, he's talking about you. He's talking about us. We have been brought near by his blood. We continue in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Our peace, our reconciliation, our only hope is the person of Jesus. Did you notice the tense of the verbs in this passage? You have been brought near. He made both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He put to death the enmity, thus establishing peace. These are not words of what is to come, but of what is already done now. Racial reconciliation is not a goal to strive for in society, but a mission accomplished through Christ's death on the cross. It is finished. We have been brought near, how? By the blood. Brought near to God, yes, but also to one another. Because in Christ, we now belong to one another. He has made both warring groups into one. The wall that separated the law had been fulfilled. But racism still exists, someone might cry out. Yeah, it does. And it will always exist this side of eternity because we are always going to be contending with these bodies of death. You can have a, a struggle with lust and a marriage at the same time. In the same way, you can have a struggle with racism and true reconciliation at the same time. You can have sin, sin be present and defeated at the same time. Look at the cross. The presence of evil after the arrival of the Messiah was among the greatest stumbling blocks of the Jews. When Messiah comes, isn't all evil, all suffering, all pain supposed to be wiped away? In the ancient world, it could take months for news to spread. When a new king took the throne, those on the edges of the empire may be the last to learn about it. They could go months without knowing they were being governed and taxed by a new king. But that didn't change the fact that there is a new king on the throne. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. There is a new king on the throne, and he's been on the throne for quite some time. And as we take that message out to the world, there are going to be people who do not know about it, but it does not change the fact that he is already seated there, ruling and reigning now. In Jesus, all the races of the earth have been reconciled because Jesus died for the sins of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Old Testament racial divisions were rooted in promises and patriarchs. In Jesus, these two foundations meet and rest upon him, our cornerstone. Jesus does not just bring peace. He himself is our peace. We tend to define peace by a lack of conflict. If Russia and Ukraine were to agree to sit down and, and lay down their guns, we would call that peace. But that is not enough. That is not the full extent of what Jesus has accomplished what Jesus has done is he has not just caused us to stop warring with one another, he's caused us to lay down our guns and pick up our forks and have dinner together and enjoy fellowship and enjoy real relationship with one another. There is a peace that goes much deeper than the superficial peace of our world. Listen to this picture from Revelation and note what everyone has in common. The reference on here is off. It's Revelation 7, 9 through 10. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every tribe, excuse, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What does everyone have in common in this picture of eternity? It's not ethnicity or nation. It's not tribes. It's not tongues or languages. It's their robes and their worship. The beauty of eternity is not that we're all the same. The beauty of eternity is that we are all united under one king adorned in white because it's his righteousness we wear, not our own. We have been washed clean. It is the power of God that warring nations have become one and have access in one spirit to the Father. When I would tell people that I was a pastor at a Chinese church, whether it's friend or a relative, the response is almost always the same. I'd be like, yeah, I'm a pastor at a Cincinnati Chinese church. Oh, a pastor at a Chinese church. And, and I would then be asked usually one of two questions. Question number one, is your wife Chinese? And oftentimes I'd be standing there with my very white children, and I'd be like, ah, oh, no. Can't, can't say she is. Uh, and then I would be asked, well, do you speak Chinese? No. Can't say I can. Took a little bit of it, and I can write it fairly well, but all those tones, I'm off. Can't really do that. And so I always thought it was interesting that our world that is obsessed with things like racial reconciliation, when they actually see examples of it on display, can't understand why. They can't understand why, why somebody would want to actually bridge that gap and, and live cross-culturally, and serve somebody different from themselves? Well, it's because Jesus' blood has brought us near. He has made us into one new family, a family of every tribe, tongue, and nation, held together by his blood poured out on the cross. I was there because the gospel is true, and no matter how much I may not fit in with the culture and customs, I already belonged, to, because we belong to one another through the blood of Christ. That is a truth that we must come to celebrate, lift up, and praise the Lord for. Paul continues in Ephesians 2, 19 and 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Who belongs? We do. How? Through the blood of Christ. Who is we? Everybody. Jew and Gentile, regardless of, because the promise was for those who are near and those who are far off. And so having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Our world uses race to tear down, but our God uses race to build a temple. Did you catch that? Our world uses race to divide, but our Lord uses our differences to paint the walls of the dwelling place of the Spirit of the living God. Our world uses race to highlight our differences. The Lord uses race to glorify Himself and reveal that by His blood we have been brought near and made new. Our world's attempt at racial reconciliation, they all fail to see just how bad the situation truly is and just how marvelous the solution is. And so I was reflecting this week, because I, I sure did have to preach on this a whole lot at the Chinese church. I will confess, I got weary of it. I also thought it was interesting in reflecting on this this past week, uh, that I gave a series of three messages on race just a few months before I was effectively asked to leave. 
And, and as I was re- reflecting on that, I thought, what do you tell a predominantly white church who on the one hand are the ethnic majority and who on the other hand have been declared guilty by a satanic I- ideology permeating education, entertainment, politics, and more? Well, the same thing I told a predominantly Chinese church. So hopefully you don't also say farewell to me. But what I said, don't fight back. And I need to qualify that phrase for a few reasons. First off, uh, I asked my wife to read over this sermon for me as I was pondering it. She didn't like this phrase. My wife is stubborn and likes to fight. No, I'm just kidding. And so she sees this phrase of don't fight back, and she's like, well, isn't it Christ-like to fight back? Well, well, yes, and I'm not saying just sit there and be a doormat. And so let me qualify this a little bit. When I was talking to my buddy KC this past week, I asked him, well, what, what's a white guy to do? <laughs> how, can I, how can I bridge some of these cultural gaps, my friend? And his first response was, well, Sean, I don't know. I'm not white. <laughs> and, and his second response was, well, don't fight back. And what he meant by that was, if, if you suspect that everyone already assumes that you're cruel and judgmental and rude, uh, don't open your mouth and confirm it. And so, rather, be one who attacks ideologies, not individuals. Be one who actually invests in relationships. For instance, I, at the start of this message, intentionally explained to you a few people who were seated around the table with me. I named them. I knew them. I love them. I still do. And so, I think one of the key ways forward here is to actually build relationships with people. And, and so, no names, no people. Understand them. Ask questions, even if you disagree with them. If you show that you actually understand somebody or, and you want to care to understand somebody, that is going to create a level of respect that cannot be had in many other ways. Additionally, you're not victims. Don't harbor anger, resentment, or bitterness. Race and sexuality are treated similarly in many circles. They're either taboo and off-limits, or they're treated flippantly, a source of jokes and crude comments. Refrain from worthless speech about that which is sacred. Talk about these matters in a way that glorifies the Lord. The world is unfair. Stop expecting it to operate in accord with justice. It's not going to until Jesus returns, until the king establishes a kingdom of justice. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Jesus destroyed the barriers that separated man from one another and from God. Satan's ambition is to convince you that those barriers still exist. They don't. They are gone. They have been destroyed. They have been crucified with the Lord on the cross. Racism is a fortress that Christ has already destroyed. Our world sees the rubble of the stronghold and tries to build back better, but the foundation's already gone. When Jesus says it's finished, it is finished. Racism is rooted in sin, but race has been redeemed in Christ. He is drawing all nations to himself. This is good news for every tribe, tongue, and nation. We were, were all strangers without hope, but by his blood we can have eternal fellowship with one another and with the Lord. We belong to one another because his blood is stronger than our fortresses. He is our peace. And because he dwells within us, real reconciliation isn't something we can just hope for, but real reconciliation is something we have now. Each of the fortresses we've encountered over the last month collapse under their own weight. Some are to be destroyed, others conquered and redeemed, restored and made new. In Christ, we are united by his blood. We belong to his family by the blood of his son, and so let us rest and rejoice in the good news of his victory. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the gift of your Son. We thank you that in him we have the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that in him we can be united with those different from us, that we can have real relationship and love those who at, once were, at one time were, were distant and cut off from one another. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bring healing and conviction as needed. And Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in the comfort you provide. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Good morning, friends. Thank you, Sean, once again. Amazing message. Uh, a couple things before we head out today. First of all, make sure to fill out those communication cards. Try to use the uh, QR codes if you can. Um, it makes things much easier, um, but just lets us know that you're here. You can also get sermon notes through those QR codes. So if you've not yet done it, give it a try. Use a little technology. People around you won't assume that you're just fooling around on your phone. They'll assume the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, visitors, um, if you can, and are interested in, in knowing more about the church, on the iPads, right out of the back doors, is an I am new here, uh, or visitors section. Just click on that, fill out some information if you want to hear from the church, know a little bit more about what the church is and what we believe. That's a good way for you to get that done. Uh, there's an, a box between the doors in the back for offering. For those who'd like to put in an offering, you can also do that online. T-shirts, uh, the CFLM T-shirts are here. Somebody wearing one want to stand up? Phil, go ahead and stand up. Yeah, all right. And I've been told they actually elicit conversations, which is some of the pur purpose of us even doing that. So if you want a T-shirt, have not gotten one yet, I think there are a few left. See Kelleen Henneke to ask her about that. Um, if you have purchased uh, diapers for the Broush baby, baby boy Broush, in route. Uh, make sure to turn those in today. We like to bless uh, families right before they have those babies by showering them in diapers. What a disgusting thing to say. <laughs> All right. Women of Joy will be meeting on Wednesday, August 16th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Debbie Shandersky's house poolside for fellowship and swimming. Swimming is optional. Lunch is provided. Please RSVP on the iPads so they can prepare sufficient food for everyone so you can all get those those cramps that they warned us about when we were kids. And that does not happen. Don't repeat that to your children. It's a lie. All right. Save the date. Uh, our third annual CF, our first ever third annual CFLM <laughs> Fall Festival, Saturday, October 14th. Um, yes, third time we've been doing this. So October 14th, make sure to mark it on your calendars. We'll be gathering for a fall festival on that day. Um, junior high and senior high ministries meet on Wednesdays. This week they're going to be meeting at the Shandersky's house. The Shandersky's are going to be a busy household this week. Lastly, this is important. Hone in for this. This is really interesting. Some very generous soul in our congregation, uh, knowing that we're building the building and working on the building, said, if, uh, if you're willing, I'd like to offer a matching grant for $25,000 for the next three weeks. So every, every penny you give... Uh, up to $25,000, this person will match over the next three weeks. So check your finances. If you're able to give some over the next three weeks, that would be awesome. And to whoever you are who did that, thank you so very much. We greatly appreciate it. Um, amen. Let's go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. Our Lord and God, I uh, just want to thank you again for the opportunity to be part of such a fellowship. Father, thank you uh, for destroying in yourself the enmity that divides us. Uh, not just us from you, but us from one another. I pray, Father, that we would find ourselves in you, that we, our, our prime identity would be as Christ follower, and that this would unite us as uh, a people 
crossing divides of all tribes, tongues, and nations. Help us to be shrewd and wise in the way we deal with a world that is hostile toward you. Lord, I pray that we go forth from this place boldly uh, as your people, being right in every circumstance. We love you, Lord. Be our peacemaker. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There's no heart you can break.